Second Peter chapter one, as you're making your way there uh, by way of introduction to this, now I got a confession to make this morning. Um, I, I'm not a huge fan of dealing with car salesmen. Um, yeah, some of you are car salesmen, God bless you. Uh, this isn't about you. This is about the one that's the stereotypical used car salesman. Brenda and I were out, we were looking for an RV a um, long time ago. If you ever heard the saying about boats, it's true about RVs as well. Happiest day of a man's life is the day that he buys his boat and the day he sells his boat, you know? RVs are the same way, you know, happiest day when you buy it, when you sell it. Brenda and I are out, we're, we're shopping for an RV, and, uh, and we're going to a bunch of different dealers, and, and every time we'd get on the lot, man, it, it, it's like they haven't eaten for six months, and you're a piece of meat coming in there. They're just on you like a dog on a bone, man. And what, I, what I'm not a big fan of is the, just the hard sell and the dishonesty quite frankly, that a lot of salesmen tick by, you know? And so these guys come, and, and frankly, I see them as a necessary evil. They're the ones that have the keys to open the things up, but I'm not going to ask them a lot of questions. Now, my wife, on the other hand, she's just peppering them with questions. She's just got all kinds of questions. She's asking them about, you know, the different RVs. And, I, and it, finally, I mean, I don't know what, how many dealers we'd been to, but finally I said, Brenda, you're killing me. I mean, good grief. Don't you know these guys are lying to you? And she said, listen, if I ask enough people enough questions, then I'm going to be able to, to sift through and find the truth. And I thought, man, I married somebody that's really smart. You know, there's a lot of wisdom to that. Well, what's that got to do with where we're at? Well, there was two questions we asked up front when we came to Second Peter. We asked who was Peter writing to and why was he writing to him? Uh, who he was writing to, the, the clue comes in chapter 3. When we get there, we'll see the clue. But basically, Peter says in chapter 3 of Second of Peter, hey, this is now my second letter I'm writing to you. Well, the only other letter that we've got that Peter wrote was First Peter, so we can reasonably assume that he's writing to the same group of people. And he identifies them in the first epistle, First, first Peter, that he was writing to who he calls the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia and so on. And basically, this is, this is modern-day Turkey. And if, if you read through the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 8, it basically says that a great persecution came upon the church. Saul, who at that time, or Paul, who was the apostle Paul, who at that time was going by Saul and was not, had not as his conversion, he's attacking Christians, killing Christians, great, great persecution, and, and the church is scattered. And it says there in Acts chapter 8 that they went out preaching wherever they went. This was God allowing hardship and persecution to come against the church to, to take the message out of Jerusalem. He had told his disciples, you'll be witnesses of me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. These, this, this, you know, intrinsic circles and this growing spreading of the, of the word. Where, well, they, they were in Jerusalem for a long time, and so God had to allow persecution to come against the church to get them to, to, to dissipate, to be dispersed and to begin sharing uh, the gospel. And so certainly they did that. They preached the gospel wherever uh, they went. It's kind of like, you know, if you have a burning liquid fire and you hit it with a straight stream of water, you're not going to extinguish the fire. You're just going to scatter that fire all over the place. This is what happened with the church. So this is who Peter was writing to. He's writing to these 
Christians that had been dispersed through modern-day Turkey. And why was he writing it? Well, first Peter, he wrote, to encourage them because they were being persecuted. They had been persecuted, that's why they were dispersed. But also in their dispersion, they were going through a great time of persecution from the outside in. And so he was writing to encourage them in their faith. Well, here in the second epistle of Peter, he's writing to them, uh, and, and his, his message isn't to deal with persecution coming from the outside in. No, now his message is dealing with false doctrine being taught on the inside, an, attack, an inside job, so to speak. And so this, this whole second epistle is how to equip his people to deal with false doctrine. And so it serves as an alarm here for us that, hey, it's vital we grow in our faith and in, uh, in knowledge. In fact, the, the, the key verse is found in chapter 3 of Second Peter where he says, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the whole idea here. Well, what Peter's going to do and where he's going to get to, and we'll get to starting next week and the weeks that follow in chapters 2 and 3, he's going to lay out the depravity and the deception and the doom of false teachers that are amongst them trying to lead them astray. But before he gets to that point, here in chapter 1, what he's doing is he's laying a foundation. That as God's children, first of all, he says that we're all part of the family of God. And uh, we share the same promises as the apostles shared in. And so he conveys that message. And then on the heels of that, he says, we need to grow up. You know, that, that, yes, we're all part of the, the household of God, the family of God, and being a part of God's household means that you can't just sit around, uh, but that you need to grow in, in faith. And so we've gone through that, and Peter's telling us the things that we need to add to our faith to grow so that we're not barren or unfruitful. And, uh, and then last week we looked at his exhortation that, hey, look, you can't live a nearsighted life, spiritually speaking. You, you have to live a life that has the big picture in mind um, and, and all. And, and Peter kind of closes that thought with, with saying, look, I'm going to make sure I leave you a legacy that even after I'm gone, you will have this constant reminder of the need to grow and to mature and to live a, a life that is a, a bit uh, more big picture oriented in the body of Christ, just not sort of taking life as it comes, um, being a little more purposeful in your faith. And uh, he says, for he says now in verse 16, as we continue, we did not follow cunningly devised fables uh, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And so what, what he says here is we didn't, we didn't follow cunningly devised fables. Now, if you, if you want to circle that nearby, you could write this. You could write wise and tasty myth. That's sort of the idea here of what he's saying. So we didn't, we didn't follow a wise and tasty myth when we gave you our message, but, but rather we're giving you the bedrock, anchor, solid truth of God's word. Now, the idea here is that there are false teachers that, that sound wise and their message is appetizing and it's appealing, but it's not true. Now, I think a perfect description of this is Eve in the garden. Put the scripture up on the screen for you. Genesis 3, 6 uh, in the New Living Translation tells us this, that the woman was convinced, 
of Satan's lies, of his appetizing and appealing lies. She was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and that its fruit looked delicious and she wanted the wisdom it would give her and so she took some of the fruit and ate it and then she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it too. This is Peter's message in Second Peter now. He's saying, look, I'm going to prove to you that our message is reliable. Why? Well, because others are going to try. There's those that are going to be within your numbers there. They're false teachers, and they're going to try and lead you astray with these wise and tasty myths, just as Satan led Eve astray. And so the question that Peter now answers that's going to become the subject of our working subject here this morning is this, how can we know that the Bible is true? How can we know that the Bible is true? How can we know that the message of the apostles is true? This is a valid message and an important message for us for a number of reasons, not the least of which is is that we doubt sometimes. Our faith, there's, there, there's those that, that maybe challenge us in our faith. They say, well, how can you be so sure that the, the Christian Bible is true? There's, there's dozens of religions. Are you telling me the whole rest of the, the world, they all have a false message and you alone have the truth? And, it, and it, can, it can sort of mess with you to where you go, well, wait a minute, how can I know? that this is the truth. Now, truth by definition, there's only one truth. Everything else is false. Only one thing can be true. And, and so we need to, to know as believers, how can we know that the Bible is true? If you're taking notes, Peter's first point, how can we know that the Bible's true? Eyewitness testimony. Eyewitness testimony. Just pick it up in context. Verse 16, for we did not follow, Peter says, cunningly devised fables, these wise and tasty sort of lies, when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were, here it is, eyewitnesses of his majesty. Verse 17, for he received, speaking of Jesus, from God, the Father, honor and glory, when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice, which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Now notice uh, Peter's repeated use of this pronoun, we. He says there in verse 16, we didn't follow tasty myths, but we made known to you the power and the coming of Jesus Christ. Uh, Again, in verse 18, he says, we heard God speak from heaven uh, when we were on the holy mountain with Jesus Christ. Now Peter here is speaking about an experience that he had, along with James and John, at, at what we refer to as the transfiguration. Now, this is in several of the gospel accounts. Turn to Luke chapter 9. We'll look at one of those accounts together. Luke chapter 9, if you turn to the left there. We're going to camp out here for a few minutes, so you want to turn over there. Luke chapter 9, and we'll pick it up in verse 28. So Peter is speaking about this transfiguration experience. Hey, we heard God speak from heaven when we were on the holy mountain. Uh, and, uh, and so, verse 28, it says, Now it came to pass about eight days after these sayings, you might want to underline that, we'll come back to that, that he, that is Jesus, took Peter, John, and James and went up on the mountain to pray. 
And as he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered, and his robe became white and glistening. Luke 9, verse 30, continuing, And behold, two men talked with him who were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. But Peter and those with him were heavy with sleep, And when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Then it happened as they were parting from him, uh, as Moses and Elijah were parting from Jesus, that Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here and let us make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, uh, not knowing what he said. And while he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were fearful as they entered the cloud, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, hear him. When the voice had ceased, Jesus was found alone, but they kept quiet, and they told no one in those days any of the things they had seen. When it says they told no one in those days, that means they told them later. Jesus, we learn in in the other gospel accounts of this same experience, had instructed them, had commanded them, don't speak about this until after I rise from the dead. So they obeyed him, and after he was risen, they conveyed the story. Now, what Peter is doing here is that he is, he is, he's talking to those believers in the, the, the church of the dispersion in the, in the area of modern-day Turkey, and he's talking to us, and his, his message is to say, listen, we, we didn't buy into a lie, we weren't led astray, But no, our message is true, and we know it's true because we were on the mountain of transfiguration. We saw it with our own two eyes. We heard the voice of God booming from heaven. Now, there are several significant points to to draw from this experience, from this transfiguration. The The first significant point to draw from this is that it confirmed Peter's testimony about Jesus. That's his his point here in 2 Peter. It's the confirmation of his testimony. That Jesus is who he says he is, and that he came from where he said he came. Peter saw Jesus in glory, he heard the Father's affirmation from heaven, and so that is an authentication that this is the real deal. Hey, it authenticates the power and the coming of Jesus. It authenticates that his message is true, that he, that he is who he says he is, the whole bit. This is an authentication uh, of, of Jesus and, and his message. Where does it come from? It comes from the fact that Jesus was transfigured and that the disciples saw it. Now, what I want you to, as we consider that first point, I want you to consider this, that we also have the same authentication that even though we physically can't be on the Mount of Transfiguration to see Moses and Elijah show up and, and to, to see uh, uh, Jesus having this in, encounter uh, with them, um, even, though, even though we're not there to, to, to see that, we still get to experience the power of transfiguration. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this, that if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away, and behold, all things become new. And so 
<clears throat> while we can't physically be there, we can be strengthened in, in the certain knowledge that, hey, what the Bible says is true because what we have experienced is a transfiguration in our lives. Or at the very least, maybe, and maybe today you're outside of a saving faith in Jesus Christ. Maybe you're here, you don't know where you're going to spend eternity. You don't know if when you die you're going to heaven or you're going to hell. Now the Bible says we can be sure that Jesus died on the cross for our sins in our place, that he rose again on the third day, that he conquered Satan's sin and death, and that we, by placing our faith in him, can be saved. And maybe today your testimony is you're here because somebody else has been transfigured and it's had an impact on you. Now, I've shared the story before of a buddy that, that I met in the fire department. And, you know, uh, I don't have time to get into the story, but the, the, the sh- very short version of the story is that at some point in, in, a, in a, just an interactive day-to-day relationship with this guy, at one particular point, he says to me, man, I want what you've got. And you hear about people asking that question, but I actually had this guy say that to me. I want what you've got. And I'm like, what do I have that you could possibly want? I mean, at that season in my life, I just pretty much sold everything I had to get in ministry. I'm driving a car that my single, uh, single parent sister-in-law gave to me as a hand-me-down. You know, she, she didn't have two dimes to rub together, but she had this old car, and that's what I'm driving. No air conditioning, August, a million degrees outside. I'm sweating like, you know, Mike Tyson in a spelling bee in this thing. And, and she, you know... She, She's like, hey, I, or he's, he's like, hey, man, I want what you've got. <laughs> what do I got that you want? He's like, I don't know, man. You got joy. You got peace. You just got the, I, I don't know how to describe it. You're just a happy guy. I'm like, dude, Roger, what I got that you need is Jesus. Now, what was the power in, in that whole thing? Roger saw transfiguration. He, he saw that, man, I had what, what counted. I had what he was lacking. Now, I wonder maybe today, maybe you're lacking something. Maybe you know, man, I don't have peace. I don't have joy. I don't, listen, you can. You can have those things. And, and, you, 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 and maybe you do have those things. Maybe your testimony is, man, when I look in the rearview mirror and I consider who I used to be, and, and I, because, you know, our growth in, in Christ, it's a weird thing. It's like, you know, it's like your kids growing up. You don't necessarily see it, but then you look at pictures and you realize, oh my gosh, you know, he's grown a half a foot or whatever it is. Look how much he's grown. Look how much she's grown. Well, gosh, look how much you've grown. And you look in the rearview mirror of your life and you think, man, God, you just, you pulled a rabbit out of a hat there, man. And, and so you've experienced transfiguration. And so that authenticates that the Bible is true, that, that Jesus is who he said he is, and he does what he says he's going to do because he's doing it in your life. Well, the second significance of this transfiguration, it not, not only confirmed Peter's testimony about Jesus, but it also contextualized Jesus' crucifixion. What do I mean by that? Well, as Jesus met with Moses and Elijah... Moses represented the law, and Elijah represented the prophets. And so Moses there, he's, you know, representing God's righteous standard and man's need for a sacrifice. And this is what the law teaches us. The Old Testament law teaches us that God has a righteous standard that we 
don't keep it and that a sacrifice needs to be made to atone for the fact that we don't keep that righteous standard. Now, the, the prophets, their message is the promise of a coming Savior, the one who would redeem his people. And so what happens then in Luke chapter 9, verse 31, it says that Moses and Elijah appeared with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. And look what it says there. It says, and they spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. That's a weird way of, of, of phrasing that, isn't it? They spoke of his impending death, but they spoke about it in terms of what it's going to accomplish. Hey, you're going to accomplish this. So what is this? This is the culmination of everything coming together. It's the contextualization of Jesus' crucifixion. It's saying, look, this is everything coming together as it should. Right? If, you've ever, if you remember the A-team back in the 80s, the, the, the guy that would lead the group, uh, he always had this saying. He says, I love it when a plan comes together. And this is Jesus and his ministry and the whole plan of creation coming together. One of the commentators points out that, you know what? Jesus is fully God and he's fully man. And that the Bible says that he was, he was tempted in all ways that we are tempted, yet he is without sin. And so what he points out is that the transfiguration experience could very likely have served to encourage Jesus on his mission as that, that reminder of, hey, the plan's coming together. The law, the prophets, it all points to you. And Jesus is about to go to the cross here. And so this is, the, this is a very significant moment in terms of God's plan for redemption, the law and the prophets. And so very important there. Um, this is what Jesus had been telling his disciples all along, by the way. Uh, Matthew 5, 17, he said, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. And so the, the transfiguration, it, it confirmed Peter's testimony about Jesus. It contextualized Jesus's crucifixion, but it also has a very third significance for us today to consider in our faith and the trusting of the truth of God's word and the anchoring to it. And that is that it points to the promised kingdom. It points to the promised kingdom. It, it, back up, by the way, we're still here in Luke 9. Back up to verse 18. And, uh, and we read there, it says, and it happened as he was alone praying. And, and here's what I'm doing. It, verse 28, when we picked up, it says, it came to pass about eight days after these sayings. So we're going to look at these sayings, what prefaced Jesus going up onto the Mount of Transfiguration. Here's what prefaced it. Verse 18, it happened as he was alone praying, speaking of Jesus, that his disciples joined him. And he asked them saying, who do the crowds say that I am? And so they answered and they said, John the Baptist, but some say Elijah and others say that uh, one of the old prophets has risen again. And he, Jesus, said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, and he says, you're the Christ, you're the Son of God, Son of the living God. Now, doesn't get into the account here in, in, this, in Luke's gospel, but we know that previous account of this exchange, what happens is Jesus then says to Peter, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven 
And, uh, and so he's commending Peter for, for this work. Now, then what happens, and, and he goes on to say, look, I say that you are Peter, and on this rock I'm going to build my church, on the rock of confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And, uh, and so he tells him that. Now, we know and have looked at what happens right on the heel of that is that Jesus begins to talk about his crucifixion, right? We see that here uh, in, uh, in Luke's gospel, verse 21. He says, and he strictly warned, commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Now, it doesn't get into the account here, but we know what does Peter do at this point? He begins to rebuke Jesus. He's like, that's not the plan, man. You, you're, the, you're the Messiah. You're supposed to come and you're supposed to liberate us from Rome and uh, establish the kingdom here. And we're all going to have positions in the new kingdom. And, you know, I got, I got my corner office picked out and my carpeting. And I, I'm interviewing right now for a secretary. And I got a position and a, and a plan and you're messing it up. That's not the way it's going to go. And Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Peter's head is in the wrong place. He, do, he just doesn't get it. He doesn't understand the significance of Jesus' ministry. He doesn't understand how the law and the prophets, the righteous standard and God's sovereign provision and Jesus coming and paying the penalty for our sin and dying and being buried and rising again to conquer Satan's sin and death, to save and redeem us and to open this way that we can come into a saving faith, that the, the, that the Messiah can, can redeem not just the Jews, but also the Gentiles and reconcile us all to Jesus Christ, all to God the Father, that we can, we can be forgiven of our sins. This incredible, merciful gift. See, the Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and that the wages of sin is death. Everybody has sinned. Everybody is doomed to death. But the Bible goes on to say that God loves you so much he sent Jesus Christ to die for you and to pay the penalty for your sin. And the good news of the gospel is that God, because he loves you and me so much, has made a way for us to be saved even when we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Bible says that God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we're yet sinners, Jesus died for us. And so this, goes, this flies in the face of religion, and it flies in the face of what we think about how I can be made right with God. And basically, the, the, the operating condition of most men and women is, well, if, I, if I'm going to be right with God, I got to, you know, help enough old ladies across the street, I gotta do good, I gotta, you know, there's something that I have to do to earn God's love. And the gospel says, God already loves you. You don't have to earn anything. He loves you. And he recognizes that you are a sinner by nature and by choice. And he doesn't wink at your sin, but he pays the penalty for your sin so that today, if you will simply say, have mercy on me, I'm a sinner. And he can save you, he can redeem you. That's the, that's the beauty, the good news of the gospel. Maybe today you're here and you, you have not come to a place where you've surrendered your life to the Lord. And maybe you've gotten tripped up with this mindset that says, you know, you gotta do good, try harder. No, you don't. You have to come to God and just say, forgive me, have mercy on me. Make me a new creation and he will. And I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that today. 
He wants to know you and he has come to save you. And so Jesus here, he, he's, he's about to reveal himself to his disciples. He's given them this message. Peter has reacted poorly to it. And then we read in Luke 9, 23, Then he, Jesus, said to them all, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him, the Son of Man, will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. And then he says this in verse 27, But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who shall not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now, now some commentators butcher this. Some people misinterpret this scripture. But when was this uh, saying of Jesus fulfilled? In the very next verse, it came to pass about eight days after these sayings that Jesus took Peter, James, and John up to the mountain and was transfigured. And so when Jesus said, I tell you that there's some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. He was talking about Peter, James, and John, eight days later, going to take them up on the mountain and they're going to see the kingdom of God. They're going to see just the whole thing and how it's supposed to come together. And the way it's all supposed to come together is just that we come to that place where we recognize Jesus is the Christ. He's the son of the living God. And he came from glory and he's returning to glory. And he has fulfilled the law and the prophets. And he makes available to everybody who will come to him by faith the opportunity to be holy, pure, just, cleansed with the hope of eternal life with God the Father. And so at the transfiguration, Jesus sent the message to the disciples and to us of his majesty. That everything comes to completion in him. That his reign is a reign of victory. And listen, that the cross wasn't the end of his life, but it was the beginning of ours. That's what this, 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 this indicates. That's the significance of that. In other words, Jesus' transfiguration gives us hope. You ever seen the movie Family Man with Nicolas Cage? Uh, Brenda and I just watched that uh, a week or so ago. Cool movie, man. The whole premise is that, that there's this guy, he's a stockbroker, and the movie starts with him just having everything. He's driving a Ferrari or whatever it is, a really nice car. And rich and rich, you know, as rich as can be, working on a big deal. And all of a sudden, he runs into this guy who tells him, hey, you know what, I'm, I'm going to give you a glimpse. I'm going to give you a glimpse of, uh, of what your life could have been. And uh, the guy goes to sleep in his rich apartment, wakes up the next day, and he's living in a house with a wife and with kids. And so it you know, goes through the antics of just him lamenting losing his Ferrari and his riches and all this stuff. But pretty soon what the guy comes to find is that, man, that life was empty. It was worthless. And that this is the life that's meaningful, the love of his wife and of his kids. And, and, he, and, he, and so he begins to, to long for, and, and now, you know, at first he's fighting to get back, and now he's fighting to stay. And then the guy, the angel that, that shows up to him to do all this says, hey, Jack, you're going back. This is just a glimpse. 
And what we have here, this transfiguration of Jesus Christ, back in 2 Peter, what Peter says is, look, we didn't follow tasty myths because we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. In other words, he's saying, we got a glimpse of the promised kingdom. It's real, it's true. And so this is the first thing is, again, he's preparing. He's saying, look, there's false teachers gonna come. You gotta get a glimpse of the true kingdom. You gotta know what's up, what's real, so that you're not led astray by these tasty myths that are gonna be coming your way. You need to be able to reject those and hold to, no, this is true. And so we can know that the message is true, number one, by eyewitness testimony, but now Peter continues, number two, second point, we can know that the message is true by the confirmation of prophecy. By the confirmation of prophecy, verse 19, he says, and so we have the prophetic word confirmed which you do well to heed as a light that shines <coughs> in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit." So Peter, he says, and so we have the prophetic word complained. Who's the we he's talking about? He's talking about Peter, James, and John. He's saying, look, we went up on the, on the holy mountain, the Mount of Transfiguration. We saw Jesus transfigured. We saw and heard, you know, the voice of God coming. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear him. We, 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 we experienced all that. And so what Peter's saying is because we saw this, we, Peter, James, and John, we have an even greater confidence in the message that was proclaimed by the prophets. Why? Because it's been authenticated to us. And then he adds this. He says, you know, that we do well to heed it as well. In other words, you and I, we do well to heed it, to heed the message. So Peter says, man, I saw it. And so we know it's true. And you'd be, pretty, you'd be better off, man, if you believed that it was true too. A lot of you guys, you know, Pastor Josh White um, preaches up at Door of Hope in Portland, a friend of mine, and uh, comes down, teaches for me, and does worship for us. Josh used to work for me, and um, he, we, those that know him laugh because he, 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 had this, he would always say to me, he'd come to me with some bright idea, and he'd say, I want to do this, and then he'd always say, you're going to love it. You're going to love it. He's the consummate salesman. Everybody who knows Josh knows that. He's like, oh, you're going to love it. And, and most of the time you would love it. Sometimes you wouldn't, but most of the time you would. But what, was, what Josh was articulating is that, you know, he's, he's an artist and he's a visionary. And so he, he'd have it, he could see it in his mind and he'd be, he'd be like, I can see it. And when you see it, you're going to love it. And, then, and this is what, what, what Peter is saying here. We saw it. We know it's true. You would do well to believe it because you're going to love it is basically what he's saying. Now, yippee for Peter. Because, you know, he saw the transfiguration and, and it confirmed for him, it confirmed for James and John the message of the prophets. But what about you and me? Because as I said, we can see the transfiguration maybe in our experience of God. Um, but, but, you know, with Peter saying we would do well to heed his words, that's great. He had proof. What proof do we have? The answer, the short answer is fulfilled prophecy. That's the short answer. See, the Bible's a book of history, it's a book of prophecy, it's a book of science, it's a book of poetry, it's a book of human behavior. 
And most importantly, the Bible's a love story. That it tells us that God loves you so incredibly that he sent Jesus to die for you. There's 66 books in your Bible. And those were written over a 1,500-year time frame by 40 different authors, uh, three different languages on three continents. And, and the incredible thing about the Bible that you hold in your hands is that there's a harmony and a continuity to it from Genesis to Revelation that even though it was written over such a long time frame by so many different authors, so many different languages, that, that there's a continuity to it. Not one word contradicts another. It is, as, as, as one of the commentators says, it is an integrated message system that comes from outside of earth and our time domain. Well, why, why, does he, why does he describe it that way as something that comes outside of the time domain? Well, because the Bible is the only book that with 100% accuracy foretells the future. And it, it is absolutely incredible. This is what Peter's saying. He says, look, the Bible's completely reliable and you need to set your course by it. And, and I like how the NIV phrases his words here in 2 Peter 1.19. I'll put it on the screen for you. He says, we also have the prophetic message. In other words, the Bible, promises of Jesus, the hope of his return, his glory. He says, we have the prophetic message as something completely reliable. And you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts but inevitably, you're going to have people who argue with you, and they're going to go, oh, well, the Bible's just written by men. Yes, it was just written by men, but Peter makes it clear that men wrote as God directed them. Again, looking at the next couple of verses here in Second Peter in the NIV, he says, above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things, for prophecy never had its origin in the human will. In other words, Guys didn't make this up. This wasn't like some, the imaginings of man that wrote these downs. But he says, prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now that's easy to say, and it's a convenient truth, right? It's a convenient, you know, claim to say. But how do we know it's true? And the reason that we know it's true, not just because of the continuity of the Bible, not just because it's historically accurate, writes about things in history that, you know, geologists and, and, and or not geologists, but those, maybe who are the people that go digging for stuff? Archaeologists, thank you. God, help me. It early Alzheimer's, I think. Anyway, you know, they will go, oh, well, that's not true. That was written about in the Bible. We haven't found that civilization. I always say, yet, because you just wait a few years and then they go, oh, we'll all be doggone. This proves the Bible true. And so those, those tell us the Bible's true. The changed lives of the apostles tell us that the thing is true. I mean, all these guys, they, they bailed and ran when Jesus went to the cross. When he rose from the dead, all of them to a man died willingly. Martyrs' deaths. And people go, oh, you know what? They got in cahoots. They were just all lying together, just making up this story. Yeah, when, you start, when, when they start killing your buddies, somebody's going to talk. Somebody's going to go, ah, it was, it was all just a joke. We didn't mean it. It was, wasn't true. No, they all died willingly. Peter, according to church tradition, was crucified upside down by his own choice. He said, they're going to crucify him. He says, don't crucify me like Jesus. I don't deserve to be crucified like Jesus. If you're going to crucify me, you crucify me upside down. Nobody dies willingly for a lie. 
So all of these things are proof to us, but the most pervasive proof is that the Bible says things that only God could say. I mean, you look at Daniel. Daniel talks about the rise and fall of kingdoms, and he lays it out. He's like, this kingdom's going to rise, and then it's going to fall, and it's going to be replaced by this kingdom, and then it's going to fall, and then it's going to be replaced by this kingdom, and then that one's going to be replaced by this kingdom, and he nails it, every single one. Not only that, Daniel, and I don't have time to get into it, but, it, but it, I taught on this. You want to go and check out the, the messages, uh, they're, they're on our website. Um, but in, in Daniel, he talks about the coming Messiah, and he, and he says it hundreds of years in advance. He nails it down to the specific day that Jesus would enter into Jerusalem as the Messiah. Nails it to the specific day. And there are those that go, oh, you know what? Daniel must have been written later because it's so accurate. There's no way that anybody could have done that. Well, God could have done that. Well, you know, it, it, just, it had to be written after the fact. And they said that until they dug up the, 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 old, the Old Testament stuff in the, in the Qumran caves, you know? And they go, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> Look, we got a copy of Daniel. It's authenticated to the date that was written hundreds of years before. Wow, the Dead Sea Scrolls nail it here. And so there is prophecy that's proved over and over and over again. Uh, prophecies about the personal work of Jesus, his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection. All of them comes true. I mean, the Bible says that he'd be born of a virgin. I mean, you, you can't make that stuff up if you're the guy that goes, oh, I, I, want, I read all these prophecies, I'm gonna fit this. Well, you can't engineer you being born by a virgin. You can't engineer that you would be born in Bethlehem but raised in Nazareth. These were predicted hundreds of years before Christ. That the, the Bible says that he would be crucified hundreds of years in advance before crucifixion even existed. The Bible says this. So, over and over and over again, that he'd be beaten, scourged, stripes on his back, that they would cast lots for his clothing, that he would rise from that. All of these things prophesied in advance and came true. God, speaking through the prophet Isaiah, he said this, only I can tell you the future before it ever happens. Everything I plan will come to pass, for I do whatever I wish. I'm God. I do whatever I want. And so God tells us and he authenticates his word over and over again. So what Peter's saying here is, look, we didn't follow a lie. We didn't follow this carefully crafted fairy tale. We're not like those people that are coming in trying to, to sell you a bag of goods. Listen, we told you the truth and our message has been authenticated by the prophets. And we saw it with our own two eyes and you would do well to believe it as well. What, what do we do with this information? Because, because I'm aware, and, and, and perhaps maybe some here today need to be persuaded of the truth of the gospel. And I make that plea to you today that I pray today you would come to the place where you would go, you know what, I'm gonna believe by faith that the Bible is true. And, I, and I'm gonna place my faith in him. And so, th so that's part of our application today. But, the, but probably numerically, the larger application is for we who are believers, what do we do with this information? What we do with this information is that we have to understand that the Bible's true. And when the Bible gives us direction, when it gives us admonition, when it gives us exhortation, 
It's giving us truth, a compass by which we're to plot our lives. And all of us, at some point in our faith walk, we have to make the decision, we have to make the determination, am I going to trust God and am I going to walk by faith or am I going to walk by sight? And so often we want to walk by sight. We want to walk by our feelings and by our emotions. But when God tells us certain things to do in his word, he's telling us because he knows the truth. And we need to know the truth today.